narrow insteps and broad toes, her love of sentimental music, her hatred of Brussels sprouts. I have my mother's temperamental hair, which on Nora is the colour of nuclear sunsets and of overspiced gingerbread, but on me, the same corkscrewing curls are more clownish and inclined to be carroty. I also have my mother's native tongue, for we led such an isolated life that I speak with her accent even though I never set foot in her country until I was eighteen years old. Some people spend their whole lives looking for themselves, yet ourself is the one thing we surely cannot lose. Some people say that we are nothing more than a bundle of perceptions. Others claim that we are composed entirely out of our memories. My earliest memory is of drowning. Perhaps I am a living, breathing example of reincarnation. Perhaps the drowning Effie's spirit leapt out of her body and into my newborn one. Let's hope not, Nora says. We are walking along the cliffs that fall away into the cold, boiling sea. We can see almost the whole island from here. The big house where we stay, the bracken and heather and boggy peat, and beyond on the far side, the yellowing macher home to rabbit and the feral cat the latter the terrifyingly ugly product of genetic isolation, animals descended from a pair of pet Siamese brought on holiday by some long-gone Stuart Murrays. For this island, according to Nora, is the holiday home of our ancestors. Why anyone would want a holiday in this blighted place I cannot imagine. Yet Nora says she remembers holidays here, remembers dipping in and out of rock pools for little brown crabs. Nora is a woman with a past she has always resolutely refused to speak about, and you cannot imagine how strange it is to hear her talk about it now. It disturbs me more than it disturbs her, for she has carried it in her head all these years, whereas for me it is a newly opened box of frights and wonders. Nora says that we shall wrap ourselves in shawls like a pair of old, cold-boned spinsters, Euphemia and Eleonora, and sit by the crackling flames of a driftwood fire and spin our stories. When she spills her own tale into the silence for me, she says it will be a tale so strange and tragic that I shall think it wrought from a lurid and overactive imagination rather than a real life. Hurry, hurry, Nora urges. We must tell our tales. How will you begin? she asks. And will it be real? Or will you make it up as you go along? Will you excise the tedium of everyday life? The humdrum of kettles boiled, toilets flushed, doorbells rung, and so on. Ad infinitum, ad nauseum. Do we really, she asks, want to listen to the prolixity of petty marital disputes over the cat, the lawnmower, the bottle of blood-red wine? Nor, says Nora, do we want commonplace tales of housefrau angst, of a handsome new lover, a beautiful child, a happy ending. Instead, we shall have murder and mayhem, plots and subplots, mad women in the attic, purloined diamonds, lost birthrights, heroic dogs, a soupçon of sex, a suspicion of philosophy. Very well. I shall begin at an arbitrary moment, just over a month ago. The season is winter. It is always winter. Nora is the very queen of winter. The place is the land of cakes, the home of the Bruins and William Wallace, 
the kailyard of Scottish journalism, Jutopolis, Dundee. Dundee, a place far, far away in the magical North Country, from whence I got my nature, but not my nurture. Dundee, land of outlandish street names, Strawberry Bank, Peeperday Lane, Shepherd's Loan, Magdalen Yard Green, Small's Wind, Brown Constable Street, Bonnie Bank Road. Dundee, built on the solidified magma and lava of an extinct volcano. Dundee, with its crumbling sandstone tenements, impenetrable accent, appalling diet, and its big estuary sky. Bonnie Dundee, where the great Tay broadens into the Firth, carrying with it salmon sewage, the molecules of the watery dead, perhaps even of Nora's sister, beautiful Effie, who drowned on the day.